It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Ben Hanna is a sport climber, boulderer, and USA national team comp climber from Santa Fe. We recorded this conversation with Ben in April, right after a controversial competition in which the IFSC made an unexpected decision to show competitors in ISO photos of the problems. That caused quite a stir among the athletes at the time, and you'll hear us talk about this controversy in the interview. Since then, however, the IFSC has responded to the wave of negative feedback from competitors, and they are no longer doing this. Check out the show notes to follow Ben on Instagram. There's definitely no one thing that has changed, but it's been a really good year, and especially this weekend was a huge milestone for me. I think my first World Cup was in 2016 in Myringen, and since then I've done World Cups every year except for 2019, and this this weekend was my first semifinal, which I was super excited about, but also after looking at the stats, I was like, oh man, I did World Cups for six years, and kept going and getting like 50th place competing in one round and then being like yeah this is great i'm gonna do this again (laughs) which i which baffles me that i uh kept hitting my head against the wall but i'm glad it finally worked out (laughs) tell me a little bit about what do you think that you attribute that to in terms of your personality or or um who you are this you know yeah this ability i guess if you look at it the other way around to just yeah keep banging away at something where maybe somebody else would have would have said oh this isn't for me or i need to do better now not not two years from now how did you keep going what was in your personality um do you think or what you've learned over the years to just keep doing it is it just love of what you're doing or more than a lot of it is is love for sure there's definitely points where i question why i'm still doing this (laughs) uh but it always comes back to i just like really love competing i love climbing i'll be climbing for the rest of my life no doubt but i like there was a moment when i was like 10 years old in the climbing gym watching like an old chris sharma film and i remember like distinctly being like that's what i'm gonna do for the rest of my life uh i'm like going home and telling my mom and she's like uh sure okay (laughs) whatever you want to do ben uh if you ever change your mind let me know (laughs) uh she immediately went out and spent the money she'd saved for college for you (laughs) Exactly, she came home yeah. in a new car. She's like, thanks, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's funny you definitely. say that, Chris, because I've, I've met uh, Ben's mom um, a couple times, and she definitely mm-hmm. strikes me, Ben, as the as the prototypical kind of like super fan mom, like, oh, the, yeah. you know, the woman who's at every competition and, and cheering the loudest and has the, you know, the foam finger up in the air, like rooting on her, <laughs> her boy. Um, She's definitely the best. And has been so supportive, both my mom and my dad and my grandparents are like so supportive. And I definitely could not have done it without that support for sure. I definitely, if I didn't have their support, I would have bailed a lot earlier in my career. <laughs> so why don't you describe where you're living right now? Because you're you're in a unique um, housing situation. And I'd love to just kind of dive into whether that's affected your uh, or been a, maybe one key into your 
you know, improvement and success in the last couple of years? I'm currently living in a house with Nathaniel Coleman, Sean Bailey, even though I can't tell our landlords, <laughs> um, Charlie Barron, uh, and Ben Nielsen and Jane, Nathaniel's girlfriend. So four out of the five us team members right now. And it definitely has been the best thing I've ever done for my climbing career. Just living in a house full of guys that are all way better at rock climbing than me and are all psyched on the same thing that I'm psyched on has been super huge for uh, my competitive climbing, for sure. So what specifically does that look like? Is it like you guys just go to the gym together and train or or is it just like, oh, you see Nathaniel, you know, go to the gym three times a day and it kind of motivates you to to put in that extra two hours or, or whatever it is? <laughs> we We all train together almost all the time. We mostly all just go to the TC, which is great because we all are on the same schedule. We all wake up at the same time, go to the gym at the same time, come home and complain about the boulders at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I think it's really just nice to A, be in an environment of people that are psyched on the same things as you are and doing the same thing and are on the same career path. Like I, I grew up in New Mexico and I was kind of the only one doing what I was doing. So there was like a lot of... uh internal motivation and like a lot of struggle of like am i doing it right like what is everyone else doing i'd really like believe that i was doing the right thing and there was also a lot of doubt that i was doing the right thing whereas being in such a close environment with so many people that are all just psyched on doing the same stuff and are on the same life path as i am i think has been huge just being around people doing the same stuff i think is like in a uh, in itself been really great um overlooking the like coming back and all the debriefs we do and like talking about movement and stuff just being in the same place as people that are doing the same thing i think is like really important well yeah i mean it's like the the other sports you know that have been around a lot longer at least at like olympic level and all these sorts of things you know they i think they've always had these facilities and these ways of keeping their teams together training together you know and it's like it's still like you guys have to kind of create it in a lot of ways. Um, like this simulated, you know, gymnastics center or whatever, like that, that have been around in these other sports for, you know, decades, literally. Yeah. It's, it's been huge. Um, and I think the, the results speak for themselves. I think 2019 was the first time we had a TC. Um, and then in 2020 we, uh, moved facilities and really, that was when a lot of the climbers all moved to Salt Lake City and we kind of got almost the whole team together. And I mean, within a year, you could see the results jump from like, you know, there was maybe one U.S. climber in finals every once in a while to like every single World Cup. We've got at least one climber in finals, a few in semifinals, if not a couple podiums, which I think is huge and speaks for itself as like what was the one thing that changed between 2018 and 2020. And I think what uh, USA climbing and Josh and Meg and Zach are doing at the TC is, has helped all of us so much. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to think about that um, just in terms of the historic history of the USA presence and world cups and stuff like that. I mean, it, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was pretty, it was fairly routine to just not even have a, an American climber at the world cup. And so it, it was, it's, it has been this sort of uh shift in, in our 
you know, climbing culture over here to to just have a lot more enthusiasm and excitement. I have to I have to imagine that the Olympics climbing becoming part of the Olympics has probably played a big role in that. But um, I don't know if you agree with that. For sure, yeah, I think it comes down to. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about money, and the Olympics brings in a lot of money. So that's like, yeah, we 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 got the Olympics, and then because of that, we got support from. Um, like Olympic committees, which meant we could have a training center, which then means we can we can then do better at the World Cups, and also just so many more people seeing it, which is obviously super huge. But having that like Olympic money support for the federation, I think, has been really big because I mean the the training center is just a total game changer. I want to dive into a couple issues that popped up at this last World Cup event. Uh, I saw some sputterings on Instagram and social media from from the likes of Alex Magos and some other climbers. Uh, one of who, who's, uh, we got to get on the show at some point because he's so opinionated. Um, he, um, he was griping about something with showing photos of the Boulder problems to competitors. I honestly, I, I didn't quite grasp exactly what the issue was so if you could explain what what the problem was and maybe what the sides are or the you know the two sides of this if of this issue are for our listeners yeah basically since the beginning of time um most bouldering competitions and and lead competitions have been flash and or on-site format which means uh we all go into iso before the round starts and when it's your turn to climb you come out and you see the boulder for the first time and then it's kind of that race of like figure out oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? And then try to do it. And then there's been this underlying issue where half the venues are at outside facilities. Like Salt Lake is just in a park. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of world cups are just at, you know, outside venues, especially in Europe. And so like a, with the lead routes, there's plenty of, lead world cups where you can just walk by in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day and you can see the routes that are up uh and <laughs> just it's casually kind of like out for a stroll yeah <laughs> and and like in your trench coat uh, yeah exactly <laughs> or like just as you know with your us team badge on you just walk up and you're like oh look there's the rock line we're gonna be on and it's always kind of just been this accepted thing where it's like don't cheat and they also like, I mean, they won't label the route climbs and sometimes the route setters will play games where they'll add holds on. Like that's like definitely a thing you'll do and you see the route and then they'll, you'll come the next day and all the holds are in different orientations. You're like, Oh, okay. And so with, and that's just kind of been the standard with lead as long as I can remember where like, even like with, you know, there's bouldering lead competitions and you go to bouldering qualifiers and the lead routes are just up right there. Um, <laughs> And you're not supposed to see them, but they're also just up right there. And so that's been a kind of an issue. And then with bouldering, uh, as you can imagine, if you're climbing, you know, you have one wall and you've got boulder one, two, three, four, and five, and everyone's climbing at the same time and you fall off your route or you're walking to your climb or you finish your climb and you decide you want to hang out on the mats for a bit, it would be really easy to just look over <laughs> 10 degrees and see all of the other climbers climbing the boulders you're about to try, which technically you're not supposed to do, but is also a thing that is, uh, happens. Like I distinctly remember just this weekend walking out after my last route and the dudes in front of me who had just finished their climbs were straight up just walking sideways 
looking at the boulders that they had for you know the the fifth and sixth boulder, which is not necessarily cheating, but it's it's definitely frowned upon. Or there's been instances where you'll see someone come off a route off like the last hold, and so they've and they've got three minutes on the clock, so they'll just sit there for two and a half minutes watching everyone climb the climbs they're about to try. So this competition, the IFSC changed the rules and added in this clause where they said they would take photos of all the routes or boulders and post them in ISO before the round started. And a lot of the athletes and coaches kind of lost their minds. I, I, I mean, I can see it from both ways. I personally climb significantly better when I have that info. I don't know. It's definitely just a mental thing. Um, but being able to see the boulder before I get on it gives me so much more confidence and makes my, uh, I mean, every, everyone will say that it helps them a lot, but I think that percentage, it helps me significantly more. Like when I compete in a red point round versus a flash format round, I feel like I place much higher. So I'm obviously psyched when I'm given more information, but I also think that uh, it kind of takes away from the spirit of competition that we've always had and I've, you know i've had since i started climbing and all these other world cup climbers have had since they've started climbing because it's kind of just been the way we've done it forever you know it's definitely one of the things that makes competition climbing so unique to other sports there's very few sports that i can think of where kind of figuring out the puzzle within your four minute time is is uh such a big part of the sport i think every other sport it's really like Maybe just surfing is the only one I can think of where it's like kind of a spur of the moment, like everything's changing. Everything else is like you roll up, you see what you're going to do. You see like even with skating or snowboarding or skiing, like you see the features, you figure them out, you get practice runs on them, and then you get to compete on them. Whereas climbing, you turn around and part of your five minutes is figuring out what am I going to do. And I think there's like kind of an aspect that people don't really talk about, which is if you're competing in a World Cup, it's pretty easy to figure out what you're going to do on a route. That's kind of like one of the prerequisites to being a World Cup climber and doing well is being able to read a route really fast. But having the confidence in doing that, I think, is significantly underappreciated, especially after getting these photos and having the like immediate change of perception. As soon as I saw the photos walking into ISO, I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be way easier because it just takes that aspect out of it. So I, I just kind of want to clarify. Um, so the, the photos came in because they were just acknowledging that everybody was kind of seeing them anyway. And they, was that the idea that like, okay, we're just going to level it and everybody gets a chance to sort of see at least an image of the problem. Um, was that the philosophy behind the photo dump as if you will, like, or allowing it? I mean, what was the thinking do you think behind the, the rule change? Yeah, I think that was part of the concept. I think one of the, the things that happens happened was one of the media. What some of the media was like, "Hey, can we post a photo of the rock climb before the competition to for viewers?" And the IFSC was like, "Yeah, sure." Because I mean, honestly, if you post one photo of one rock climb, one boulder, don't give it a label. You know, there's there's two groups per gender um, in qualifiers and five boulders. Uh, it, it could be, you know, like you have no idea what you're climbing on. You have no idea what you're looking at if that's not labeled. And so it doesn't really matter. And then I think that snowballed into, we're going to post all of the photos of all of the climbs before every round. (laughs) 
and there was definitely an aspect of and I, I so I don't really know why um, that was one of the things that had been brought up and the other was that yeah people they were having a hard time mitigating the cheating because it's you know especially with outdoor venues it's just it's difficult and like the cost of tarping off a outdoor bouldering wall was like 70,000 euros <laughs> wow um, don't they just go to Walmart so, and get some get some tarps or what i mean that's what i thought too but there was people talking about an iso and they're like yeah to tarp off the, the wall in innsbruck it was like seventy thousand euros like, oh the tarp God. dealers are like we're gonna soak these people for some tarps for real uh you're like yeah, oh, looking yeah, at, so they're I, looking at like crystal grade tarps too they're yeah, like yeah. trying to make it artistic, artistic and, look, yeah it yeah. can't look like yeah you can't just like bungee cord blue uh vinyl tarps to the thing i yeah, guess we're gonna be bad for buy, business <laughs> one massive tarp to fit the whole wall and then we're right. gonna get two lifts to hang it from <laughs> uh yeah so i mean i think that i think a big big part of it was the cheating was to try to mitigate the cheating and say like hey if we we're gonna post photos of all the boulders before iso so no one can cheat and i think that it's still technically a rule but it's more of a soft rule because basically what happened was they had it happened in qualifiers and everyone lost their minds all of the coaches, all of the athletes, everyone was like, ah, change. <laughs> uh, semifinals, the girls, uh, all the girls that made semifinals were put in a group chat and they're like, we're going to boycott the, the photos and we're going to sign them and then we're going we're gonna to burn them and throw them in the trash and then rip them up. Uh, and, <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, Okay. Uh, and then apparently that didn't happen. And they all just looked at the photos. <laughs> um, and then, and then I made semifinals and I was put in the group chat and like to, to put it in perspective, I, I mean, I'm, I, I know a lot of them and I'm, I've been competing on the circuit for a long time, but they are all still my heroes. And I first semifinal, like one of two Americans, uh, and they're like, we're going to boycott the photos and we're going to rip them up and we're going to, we're going to burn them. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Okay, um, I mean, I kind of want to just look at the photos, <laughs> but I didn't want. To, I mean, I'm not going to say that in the group chat. I'm not going to be the only person in the group chat to say that. Well, you said it here on the on the Runout podcast, which is going to be worse for you, Ben. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, totally. Oh, I'm gonna. Yeah, no. Yeah, I guess I just have a quick question. Just um, are the holds that are used in the World Cup so familiar that a photo really is giving away? information that i mean can you as a world cup climber just kind of identify holds from a photo and know exactly how big they are and where the sweet spot of the you know the in cut part of the the sloper is or whatever whatever it is or are the holds just kind of mixed up enough where that you know you're not quite certain what you're going to get when you actually touch the hold for me it's 100 percent. i i i did make two mistakes when i was looking at it but Pretty much from the photos, I could uh, uh, identify every hold, figure out exactly what I was going to do, know exactly how I was going to feel, and they gave us they gave us all the information. They didn't specify how much information they were going to give us. Whether they'd say they were going to post twenty photos and just have twenty photos up, or whether they were going to post photos with genders, or whether they put photos with genders and groups, or photos with genders and groups and order of holders, and they gave us everything. Men's boulder one, two, three, four, five, group B, group A. So I knew exactly what I was going to do. I knew exactly how to warm up. I knew exactly what my round was going to look like. 
what the emotions were going to be, whether starting with a slab and then we're going to go in a power boulder and then this is going to be the really hard. Uh, and, and that's, I mean, I think that comes a lot of experience and different athletes will have different experience, like experience with that. Cause I have a lot of friends that don't like watching qualifiers in lead because they don't, they don't, it makes them nervous watching other climbers climb on the lead routes before they do. Whereas I like, I want to see everything. I want to see where people like go fast, where they're going slow, whether they're shaking, what beta they're using, where people are making mistakes, what holds they clip from, how much tension they're having in their body. Um, like I love having as much information as possible and I can really, the more information I have, the more I can calculate what it's going to feel like. And as soon as I can calculate what it's going to feel like, I can mentally prepare and then I'm able to climb significantly better. And so with all the information from those photos, like I know every single hold, I've touched them all. I know exactly how they're going to feel. I can pretty much fully anticipate the entire round. Wasn't Magos just mad because they photoshopped a, a scale-sized Magos onto the photos? Wasn't that what really actually made him pissed? <laughs> just so you know how big this is, here's Alex Magos right here. <laughs> it was really Alex small. Legos. <laughs> Alex really Legos. Small. But, you know, it, it, the, the old way, or I mean, maybe it'll be the way again if this outrage moves away from the photos again, but the old sort of way of like, you know, don't look, but look kind of thing. It, it kind of mm-hmm. reminds me of baseball because there's, there's like, I mean, I'm not a huge baseball aficionado, but there's a whole bunch of things in baseball that is, are like the wink, wink, nod, nod that yes, it's against the rules and try not to get caught, you know, like putting stuff on the ball. And, but I think within <laughs> the culture, there's just this like, you know, look away. And if you got away with it, you got away with it. And it's all part of like a hundred years of baseball. And um, it feels like you guys had sort of, you know, settled on this, like, don't look, but you sort of do because you're human. And, and it was kind of working, do you think, in your mind as far as like, or was it, were people protesting that version or like ever, you know, trying to get someone sanctioned for looking too much or hanging around on the mat? Or, I mean, was there ever a controversy around the old way as far as people obviously just soaking up information? There, there has always been controversy for sure. Uh, controversy, like I have friends that are very strict about the no looking. Like they walk out with their heads to the ground. They don't ever look at anything. And then I have friends that are like, dude, I mean, like, right there. Right there. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not gonna say any names. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's Alex like goes. and like, uh, <laughs> and and yeah, it's funny because I like you know, there's plenty of people that were like raging on the boulders uh the photos of the boulders and then i just watched them watch other climbers try the boulders that they haven't done yet i was like dude if you're gonna pick a stance like you know stand on it don't like say this is you know outrageous that you can see the boulders before an iso but as soon as i'm on the mats like it's okay to like watch other people climb and i mean as far as the photos go and my my purse where i stand on it is like i think it makes it easier for me I am there to win. I want to win, but I I think that it I would rather it go back to not having photos in ISO. Cuz as much as I think that it gives me an advantage, like I I also love competition cuz of competition and that's a part of it and that takes it definitely you lose a bit of the spirit of it when you put the photos in ISO, I think. So I would like to see it go back to the way it was. Even though <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, I think I could definitely do better with the photos in ISO. 
I also don't want to but, um, but, let let the one one thing you said go, Ben, which was um, just what a bunch of evil conniving bastards the root setters are for putting decoy holds on their problems overnight so that all the, oh, yeah. all the trench coat lurkers who, who are sauntering by <laughs> casually with their binoculars are fooled the next day when they don't have the their beta dialed in. Oh, for sure. Yeah, That's I remember in youth cool. I used to like spend, <laughs> like specifically in youth too, like, you know, they have the world championships and they just do all three disciplines in the same week. So they would have, you know, you do bouldering, and the roots would be up for two, three days before you got to climb on them. And like my first couple of years, I would just sit there and I would just memorize every climb. And then sure enough, qualifiers would roll around and they would just all be completely different. And I would have memorized like the girls be root and just not even looked at the dudes. And so that was the point where I was like, I just, this is not even worth looking at it. <laughs> like show up at the day before. And the thing is too, like in qualifiers, you have to watch a group climb really. So it doesn't really matter. But yeah, it's, it was pretty funny. I remember the, the year that I realized that that was something they would do. They had all these big volumes on the wall. I was so psyched on this climb and I came out and all the volumes were gone and there was holds under them. <laughs> I was like, oh, come nice. on, I don't know what I'm going to nice. do. Nice, they had the volumes on top the of the holes. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I'm I'm going to stick with this baseball analogy because to me, objectively, baseball seems super boring, right? Uh, and that's just my opinion. Sorry, baseball people. I think it's a widely held sort of diss. But then when you when you drill down on it, one of the things that the real nerds love are these sorts of things and, and some of this stuff that's like the the part of the lore, which is like I said, especially like putting something on the baseball, that's still like a big deal um for a pitcher to be to be getting a rosin on it or whatever and, and getting away with it. And and it and everybody knows who like does it and who doesn't and it's all part of the lore. And and I think to like back to what you're talking about and, and then this whole thing about these setters trying to fool you guys like it to me right away I perked up when I heard that and it made the whole thing more intriguing to me and the more sterile like let's say they they you know did some regime where they you know they marched people out to the boulder and then they they weren't allowed to stay out there and like or they you know put up ice like walls between the boulders so you were in the one boulder zone like if they'd all tried to do all these things to mitigate this, it would sterilize the sport and make it kind of almost comical. And so it's like, to me, the fact that this goes on and people are glancing at the boulder and everything you're telling me actually makes me more attracted to the sport because of these weird under the rules strategies are what are super intriguing to me. And like the yeah, thought of totally. you walking your dog randomly at midnight in front of the Olympic park you know, just because, you know, Fido had to pee, right? But really, you're out there to try to check, not you, the you, the the general you, to check out the route. I think that's so cool. And the fact that, you know, whoever, Franz, the the, the Austrian root setter, had this whole plan to, to swing a volume around so no one could use it the way they thought is, like, awesome. This is all awesome news to me. And um, I like I like your sport more now. <laughs> yeah i mean i i love it it's it's fun and it's it's like there's there's it's little yeah it's a little spicy um yeah that's it and it's the really spice, funny man. with the, the drama between like uh i mean the people that do look at the roots and how much do they look at the boulders and which mm -hmm. boulders are they looking at i think it's funny uh, like i'm gonna watch that <laughs> i'm gonna watch that now i'm gonna watch yeah, yeah. whenever when the you, camera's down there i'm gonna be like oh my god 
look, Natalia's like completely staring at that girl while she's clapping. <laughs> when you when you watch the World Cups over, you can totally tell who looks at the boulders and how long yeah, they look at the I boulders. Love it. And, I love it. And it's it's hilarious. And there's like there's some that like do it really obviously and there's some that are a little better at it. And I think it's hilarious. And I mean yeah. at the end of the day it's just not I just don't think it's that big of a deal. You still as have to much climb as the damn I think, boulder. yeah, you still have to climb the damn boulder. And like, there's been some pretty funny instances where you, like someone will look over and see someone doing the wrong beta, and then they'll come out and they'll try the wrong beta for like four and a half minutes. <laughs> uh, ben, I want to switch topics real quick to um, get your give us your read on what athletes are saying about another controversy that the IFSC has sparked, which was their um, decision. Or just announcement that they're working with Discovery Sports on a three-year subscription-based broadcast deal. So basically paywalling all of the competitions for the next three years. Yeah, what are what are athletes saying about that? What's What are your thoughts and uh, why is it um, the worst thing that can happen to competition climbing? I think there's a few different ways to look at it and there's a few different opinions, which is the first one being like, how much does it change the numbers? Like how many less people end up watching the world cups and the second one is how much money are they making off this deal and where is this money going if they make a ton of money and the views don't go down and then they spend that money on making the world cups a better place you know whether it be paying the root setters more or paying the athletes more because i think like if you win a world cup you get like five thousand dollars which is like barely covers your travel to a world cup or whether the views go down significantly and the money doesn't, there's not that much more money and the money doesn't, you know, none of the athletes or the setters ever see the money. I mean, yeah, it's interesting because I think like a lot of other sports, uh, that's just the way that it goes, right? Like I didn't realize that until I tried to like get into watching another sport and I was like, oh God, I like don't know how to watch basketball. I got to call a friend and I'm like, how do you watch basketball? what 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 is what is i like tried looking it up on youtube like basketball <laughs> championships and it didn't didn't couldn't find anything so yeah i think like eventually it's our sport's going to end up going that way and the hope is that like it does end up going that way because that means that uh people like me can actually make a living competing being an athlete uh but at this point in our sport like i just feel like it might be uh, a little too premature I think it's much more important to have more people watching rock climbing than it is to make those few people that are watching rock climbing pay for it. I would much rather have a couple thousand more people watch the World Cups because it's super easy and they see it on someone's Instagram. They're like, oh, you know, like I have this World Cup and they're able to just click on it and the YouTube comes up and they can just watch the World Cup than like trying to make money off of the few people that are doing it. And I think that's like what it comes down to is we're still trying to grow our sport. We're try- still trying to like solidify what our sport is and as long as we have easy free access to our sport it's going to make that our job of building this into a real sport that much easier and i think i mean that's my personal opinion Um, yeah i guess it just has to be remained or will remain to be seen and you know hopefully they've done some sort of accurate market research to see if they think it's going to work you know but i mean you're absolutely right and it feels like like basketball is free, but it's not. I mean, it, it, it's it. You have to have a cable package, and everyone exactly. just sort of pays for that, and then thinks it was like whatever they're getting was free. But you, 
you literally, yeah, you can't just watch NBA, you know, whatever NBA, NFL stuff for free online anywhere. It it's all behind a paywall. Um, even though it feels like it's not because we're used to growing up, having grown up and watched it like as people, Andrew and I's age anyway, just on the television on, you know, the, the, totally. the NBC, ABC, CBS, but all that costs money, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it is, it's just kind of maybe also a matter of whether they're trying to do it too soon, I think is probably the question market wise, yeah. if, if you're going to stunt the growth because you sort of tore the, tore the bandaid off too soon. Or if it's like time, just because we had the Olympics, there's probably something in their thinking. But yeah, it's interesting. It's hard, hard to figure out. They're gonna like squash its growth totally. anyway. I don't know the numbers. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have any any idea. But I could see, you know, the IFSC being like, we, you know, are basically hemorrhaging money from making a, a live streaming every right. World Cup every year and not making any money off of it, and like being like, oh, we finally made it, we can actually make some money or like at least pay for the, the live stream, which I mean, makes sense. Like if you're hemorrhaging money every year trying to live stream your sport and you have the Olympics, the sport grows exponentially. It's like, okay, like, oh, we're finally there. We can finally pay for this through subscription or, you know, maybe if you're lucky, you make money off of it, but I'm sure they're probably just trying to get it paid for. But on the other hand, like I personally believe, like I think the band aid's probably getting ripped off too early. Um, I mean, obviously they're asking climbers to pay for something, which is the excuse. <laughs> like that was the thing that like happened last time. Like they tried to make people pay for the subscription, and they're like, "Rage!" And you're like, "Yeah, dude, what did you expect? You're asking climbers to pay for something, dude. Like, you're <laughs> we're not there yet. Um, we're still all doing this out of love, and like it's like a you know passion project." Not yeah, you're just talking athletes, to two, but... two podcasters, one in his basement and, uh, you know, one in his, his guest house. So yeah, for real. I mean, like, <laughs> we, know I, about, you know, I've, we know about giving shit away for free. <laughs> I've, I've been around for, you know, I've watched the sport grow, you know, exponentially. Like I know exactly the, the, the you know, <laughs> the, like, yeah, it's like, you know, everyone that's been in it for more than like 10 years is all you know, dirt bag doing climbing, you know, climbing because they love to climb, not because they like can afford to climb. Well, this is a good time to plug our Patreon subscription, um, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and if you if you subscribe to uh, the Runout Podcast for five dollars a month, then we could, uh, you know, send you email updates on World Cup results, and that's yeah, about exactly. as good that as we be could the offer. intermittent thing, <laughs> or I'll screen grab and then send you the free version of it. Through my <laughs> through Dropbox or so. How how would we do that? I'll just steal stuff from Discovery Channel and give it to you. We need an intern who can who knows uh, how to pirate the the, uh, the the World Cup feed. Ben, what's uh what's next for you? What's the uh, next World Cup, and um, what are you doing to prepare for it? And um, what's your season look like this year? Now that you're on the Nationals team, and and I assume doing more World World Cups. Yeah. Um. So my, my plan is to do every World Cup I can get my hands on. I'm going to get an invite to every bouldering World Cup and hopefully two lead World Cups. So the next one's in Korea, um, I think in like two and a half weeks I leave. And basically my plan is to do everything in my power to not think about rock climbing until then. Really trying to keep the expectations low and try not to let the little success uh, get me too psyched and... Um, <laughs> fuel the ego too much so i'm going to focus on 
everything else I can to kind of just take my head off of it. Uh, hopefully a little bit of climbing outside till then, maybe like one, one trip to pop tire and then Korea. And then I think it's another like two, three week gap. And then we've got the two Salt Lake World Cups, uh, World Cup in Innsbruck, and then a World Cup in Italy, I think, that took uh, Russia's World Cup. We might have one in China, depending on what the COVID situation is. So from a like, not, not even a competition standpoint, but one of the things that have drawn climbers to this, you know, this sort of thankless sport up to this, you know, like you just said, up to the last couple of years where you're just doing out of passion, you're doing it out of pocket. Um, always the travel and these, you know, going to these places has been a big draw to see, see different places. So if you had to say, I mean, uh, obviously, you know, the culture of Salt Lake City is probably your favorite, but if you had to like put somewhere else ahead of that, you know, what are you looking forward to just from like, wow, I want to go to this place or, I, or I've been here like to Innsbruck and I love that, that place and I love going there. I am really excited to go to Asia because I've uh, I've never been and I'm allergic to peanuts, tree nuts, and sesame seeds. So I have always bowed out of the Asian World Cups, given that I will probably die if I go there. <laughs> um, so I am stoked because I've always really wanted to go to Asia. And this year I was finally like, you know what? Screw it. We're doing it. We're rolling the dice. <laughs> My plan is to bring... Uh, a little camping stove and a gallon bag of oats and just eat oats for the whole time I'm there. <laughs> uh, and hopefully and an EpiPen. I'm stoked. Oh yeah. I'm bringing for sure the EpiPens <laughs> and a lot of Benadryl. <laughs> but yeah, I'm really excited for Korea. I'm like really, really amped. And honestly, all of the World Cups, I mean, doing the World Cup circuit is just amazing. I mean, I, I can't express how incredible the experience of doing the world cup circuit is completely climbing aside just traveling and all of the homies i've made over the last six years i mean really it's been like uh 10 years now that i've i've been meeting and you know like i i still have all friends i met in 2013 that i like talk to on instagram all the time and i see every time i go to europe for these world cups um and so it's like it's like kind of the home away from home um and also Europe's amazing. Um, it's just way more fun than the United States. <laughs> so I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited for sure for all of them, but Korea is the one that I haven't been to yet. So I'm excited for that. Wally Kamal is a Pakistani American climber from California who is working to support the development of crags and climbers in Pakistan. Check out the show notes to follow Wally and find ways to contribute to his efforts to strengthen the Pakistani climbing community. So I guess like the, the local scene kind of revolves primarily around uh, Margala Hills, uh, which is like a sort of national, I think it's a national park uh, right behind the capital city. So Islamabad is like sort of like the foothills of Himalaya, quote unquote, is what they always say. Uh, but it's, it's, sort of like a big hilly area, like right in the city. So it's kind of like lush, green, foresty. There's like monkeys and all sorts of crazy cool animals. But there's about five or six, maybe like a handful of crags out there with like 100 sport routes that have been bolted. Stuff like from, you know, easy stuff up to, I think, stuff that's graded like 8A or so. Uh, primarily, I think the initial development was started by some like visiting uh, British and other climbers. Uh, John Aaron, I think, was like one of the primary guys that spent a lot of time there. He's out of the UK and uh, he's really like really, really getting after it. 
uh, like, you know, huge crusher, like from the 2000s and 2010s, I guess, but like randomly came across him in some like British climbing films and things like that. But uh, so him and then some other visiting climbers, there's a Japanese diplomat now passed, unfortunately, but uh, by the name of uh, Junya Matsura, who also did a lot of bolting and and in the midst of all the bolting and stuff, uh, like locally next to Islamabad, um, they sort of, you know, took a lot of folks under their wing and, and really tried to, uh, it seems like, you know, invest in, in, in a lot of like the sort of budding talent who's like interested. And, but then in terms of like the local scene now, like because of really the accessibility of all of these, you know, like really, really good quality, like limestone uh, sport crags, you have like, you know, about a couple dozen, maybe three dozen like regulars that are sort of self-sufficient that kind of get after it themselves. Uh, that number is like, you know, kind of a guesstimate based on like what people have said. But uh, there's also like, you know, uh, one of the, one of the main guys in the scene, um, by the name of Sajid, uh, Sajid Ali Aslam, who is, uh, uh, he actually has an epic TV video featuring him where he, uh, he did like some crazy, like I think 27 pitches in a day of just like every single sport route from like 6A to 6C plus or whatever uh, in the crag. And, and, you know, so he runs a guiding service uh, out of there and, and basically we'll take groups out and, you know, put them on top ropes or teach them to sport climb properly. And, uh, and I think that's kind of like a, a big entry point for a lot of people. But aside from that, like, you know, the, the dedicated, the group of like, you know, 20 or so, uh, sort of, you know, regular climbers is kind of primarily around Margala Hills in Islamabad. And that's actually where the guy, uh, who reached out. So Sherry R, uh, who is one of the sort of, you know, main kind of folks in the scene. Um, who uh, I ended up connecting with and, and really delivering like a lot of the gear we raised money for uh, that they're asking for. Um, so yeah, like him and and a, and a bunch of people are just like climbing almost like every day, every few days, uh, depending on the time of year. I, I'm really interested in the human part of this too. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, you're talking about there's this really small group of climbers, um, some of whom you've become friends with, it sounds like. Um, you spent time cragging with them. I, I'm just like curious about like what the kind of vibe is and what these sort of people are like and what kind of things do you see that relate to, you know, the climbers everywhere, you know, the obsession, the, the sort of desire to get into it. Like, who are these people? Um, you know, if you could pick a couple, a couple folks to sort of describe their background, where they came from and, you know, how they ended up rock climbing. Cause I think it's fascinating here how people end up becoming rock climbers. And that's gotta be even like a deeper look into, um, into, you know, transcending a lot of barriers to become a rock climber in a place like that. Like when thinking about like Pakistan and like, you know, any sort of developing country, one thing that's very striking for me is like how class stratified it can often seem and appear. And I think it's even more like marked when you're sort of visiting as an American and, uh, you know, going back home and, and, and I think coming back with like dollars, especially, but uh, I mean, you know, so the, I guess the question is like, where do people come from? Do they come from like you know, villages? Do they come from like, you know, cities and things like that? Uh, it's certainly a mix, right? So I think a lot of the climbers are like from, from a variety of like backgrounds. Pakistan has a lot of different like ethnicities like within. Um, so like you have like different uh, like ethno-linguistic groups like uh, in Islamabad and like kind of north there, there's several, but uh, it seems like there's a mix. So you, um, so Sajid, which is one guy that I mentioned, he's like from Kashmir, so like kind of more north, um, uh, like northern areas ish. Uh, and then you have like Sheriar, who's the other guy that I met, who uh, is from like uh, KPK, which is like uh, the sort of province that encompasses um, the areas. I guess it actually does encompass the north. I forget they've redrawn the boundaries of some of the states and stuff. Um, but like people are from like you know villages. Sometimes like 
cities, sometimes like, you know, from nor- like relatively middle class backgrounds, sometimes like from more humble-ish means and things like that. Uh, but I think like, you know, the obsessiveness is, is pretty like there. And I think people are, are very much like, uh, just like anyone in, in, in any place with like mountains can very easily become like enthralled by just like, you know, cool big mountains really. And just, you know, uh, something special about uh, being, and especially because they're around it so much and, um, you know, and they have access to, you know, really big, scary mountains, honestly. Uh, so people kind of like get the drive. And, and, and I think the way that, so uh, Sherry, when I was talking to him, um, he was saying how when he got into climbing, it was like, you know, he saw like a picture of like a one of the really, really large rock spires uh, somewhere and like people climbing it. So that's kind of a very inspiring sight. And to know that like these types of things are like in Pakistan and probably it makes it like a, a person sort of like say like, hmm, I wonder, like, is that something that's like within reach? So that's, that's kind of like a common theme that I've heard from some people. Uh, like, I think just by virtue of Pakistan having big mountains and people being there, uh, people become curious and like kind of inspired. I assume you've, you'd been to Pakistan before you became a climber um, to see, it sounds like your dad was living there. Uh, I'm curious to hear how, once you kind of found climbing and became this climber, how your experience to this country changed just through having new eyes and, and having this new identity as being a climber and, and kind of how that informed your, you know, your, your, your sense of place and just your, your sense of, uh, being a part of this, this country. I'd been to Pakistan once in like 2003. I was like maybe a third or fourth grader at the time. Uh, and then I had not gone again until like 2015, 16. So, you know, I got a, an interesting experience like in the country prior and, and, and my first few trips were really like, was very curious, like how does a whole thing work? When I first got off the plane, it's, uh, in Karachi and, and, you know, pulled up at home. Uh, it's like very striking, like the sort of nature of like, you know, poverty in like a mega city. And like, there's the classic like slumdog millionaire, like, you know, where they in the movie, they uh, sort of display like, you know, they would kidnap kids to like make them into like beggars, basically by these like mafias. Uh, so that was like something that was like very like straight, like shocking, honestly, uh, when I first got to Karachi, which I think, you know, had a lot of issues along those lines. And just poverty in general is like very huge. So I think my, my initial experience in the country is a lot about like, how do you fix it, right? Because it's gotten so like, kind of gotten like pretty like fucked by colonialism. And um, just in general, like the levels of corruption and like, from like one military dictatorship to another and the trajectory of like, you know, the governments and just the, there's a lot of stuff that's like very like systemic. Um, and then in terms of like the, the thought of like climbing in Pakistan, like that, like, you know, I, I kind of knew about it, obviously, like I said, uh, but it wasn't really like a, like a, a realistic like thing to like, you know, go back and climb there and like try to connect with like local climbers, even though you might know that they exist. Uh, I was actually like, so I was in Joshua Tree one time and uh, very coincidentally, like we ended up like climbing next to like, uh, like Robbie Phillips and like Jeremy Sherburn and like Todd Gordon. So like, to, like Robbie, obviously Patagonia, like and, and Jeremy Sherburn and, and Todd Gordon, like Joshua, Joshua Tree locals who crush her super OG. Uh, and, you know, just kind of like chatting with them and like, you know, like I, I think when I was like talking with Robbie, he was like, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I, I think because I mentioned he, I think he said how he was like trying to, you know, go climb in like, you know, the Trangos, etc. And I mentioned, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm actually like my family's from Pakistan, like my dad lives here. So I'm like curious, like, maybe like, you know, eventually something would be cool to do that. And he's like, oh, you should try and develop climbing out there. And I was like, uh, I don't even know the first thing about that. Um, but I mean, like, certainly the idea was kind of planted of like, you know, hmm, maybe like, might be possible to like help out or, you know, just like show up and like climb, basically. How did you get um, connected to the climbing community there, though? Were you just, did you just show up at the crag and be like, what up? I'm here. Yeah, no. 
I mean, it was mostly through like social media and like, you know, I think I hmm. like literally just from like Reddit and Instagram and like it was it was first in response to like their request for like asking for like gear pretty much. Right. So I was like, oh, yeah, I can like try and help. And like, you know, I have some old cams, et cetera, et cetera, and can ask around and try to just raise money on Venmo. So then, you know, that, that was like a very organic like, OK, yeah, sure. I can try and like help because cams are very cheap over here. Over there, they're subject to like import duties and, and crazy like extra markups. So I think you end up paying like probably more than 100 US dollars per cam, which like adjusted for uh, like currency exchange is like very, very expensive. Pakistan's like currency is like kind of uh, been in decline just because of like current account balance, like some macroeconomic issues and all that. So in, in reaching out regarding that is like how I got connected and, you know, like got added to like a WhatsApp group of a bunch of guys who are like, you know, uh, like big on like climbing. And, and a lot of them were starting to get into like skiing and ski touring and things like that. Like it's it's a small enough group that you can kind of just like hit someone up randomly and be like, hey, I'm going to be here. Like, you know, I'm a climber. Like I heard you guys climb, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and I feel like, you know, climbers everywhere are, are very much uh, generally like, you know, it's, it's a small enough tribe where people are like, oh yeah, you're a climber too. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. It's interesting to uh, hear you say that because I'm, as you said, I'm kind of planning my own heritage trip to go see my family in, in Palestine and, um, and connect with the climbing community there. And it's a similar situation where it's just getting gear to the climbers seems to be the most pressing issue because it, as, as you mentioned, there's all these macroeconomic forces that kind of just prevent, uh, you know, an easy, you know, there's no Amazon prime, so to speak, or whatever the convenience is that, that we in America are so accustomed to. One thing to note, actually, is, it's probably a good point to bring up is like, I think with the case of like Pakistan and climbing, it's certainly like, you know, like the locals in like the Northern areas are, are certainly like kind of naturally like required to climb just by virtue of being in very mountainous places. I'm sure as a lot of like folks from like mountainous regions are uh, are, are sort of required to be. Um, but I just, just to like, you know, put it in perspective, I think the first, uh, like, you know, a lot of the, the early ascents of like, you know, the Pakistani peaks and stuff were like enabled by, of course, all the porters and things like that, uh, who themselves eventually would, would oftentimes become climbers or like, you know, with the military out there, like, you know, I think because the very contested Kashmir sort of border, et cetera, et cetera, is in a very mountainy place, I think, like mountainy things get to be like, you know, like there, there's some idea about like, you know, navigating them, et cetera, but uh, sort of to pursue like, you know, climbing and like a sense of things just as like an endeavor on its own, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, perhaps not as a, like, I mean, it, it, it almost feels like kind of like a, not a Western invention necessarily, but probably might be, but. Well, the, you know, the, what you're saying is that there's, I mean, this is, this was true in Nepal to my understanding is I mean, we, where we have, um, Jim to crag initiatives, they have Everest to crag initiatives where you, you know, you take uh, Sherpas who know how to climb Everest and they can do that in their sleep, but they don't know how to, you know, do technical rock climbing or, or sport climbing or, or really have like the belay skills that are required to, to crag. Um, and it, it kind of sounds like what you're describing as well, where there's this like rich mountaineering history and just interaction with with mountaineering from this, uh, from this very, um, you know, old school sense of what climbing is. But what you're alluding to is just this new, yeah, the new the new style of climbing that we all, that we do and just going out to the crags and having fun. You kind of want, you know, one thing to like lead to the next because if in theory people get really good at like stuff on vertical rock, then that sort of, you know, lends itself to okay, like ice climbing and stuff can naturally extend from there and from there like once you get like a mix of all these other skills it like leads to like really cool alpinism, 
not to have like a locals only sort of mentality, but like, you know, it'd be the raddest thing. Like, you know, if, if the people who are really indigenous to these places, because like some of the villages that like, you come across when going to like Karakoram have been continuously inhabited for like out, like 2000 years or something absurd. I don't even know the exact numbers that people, when they take their like yaks and they herd them in like the high pastures of like Hunza Valley and stuff, they're basically doing Whitney right there. Like, uh, stuff like that. So it's, it's you know, you, you would like to see like a lot of uh, future potential, but that's not to say that it isn't already like starting to happen. Like, you know, this scene like of, of sort of rock climbers in Islamabad, which is like, you know, very much a normal, like sort of modern city in a lot of regards um, is, you know, that's kind of, you know, been self-sufficient and like sustaining on its own uh, with the kind of initial push by like outside climbers. And it's, uh, you know, now starting to like adventure sports and mountain sports are all really kind of on the come up. Uh, and especially northern areas and the the mountaineering history with like you know goes back to like you know the 50s and like i think first ascents of like the first like pakistani ascents quote unquote of major peaks were like you know in the 60s and 70s i think k2 was first like climbed by a pakistani in like 77 so like almost like 20 something years right after um there's a you know sort of a, a very og figure in, in pakistani climbing that just passed away actually like i think the other day uh by the name of like little kareem who uh, you know, started out as like a porter, just like local to, I think from Gilgit originally. Uh, so one of the main like cities in, in northern Pakistan, like in Karakoram, um, who, uh, you know, was a porter and, and you know, from that became like a, you know, proper high altitude mountaineer. And, and you know, and there's a lot of other like, you know, current figures too and current guys. Like, I think there's a, a dude, uh, Sirbaz Khan, who is attempting like, you know, to do all like 14, 8,000 meter peaks. And the mountaineering game is kind of like, like people are already like into it to it to a decent level just like naturally and but then like the vertical rock climbing world has gotten really neglected um but i i should mention like that said like this kind of small scene of islamabad climbers uh has produced actually like folks that have uh you know gotten like you know real legit ascents and like you know the train goes and stuff like that so Couple of climbers, um, you know, unfortunately now passed uh, uh, Imran Janeli and Asmantharik. They they did a variation of a route of a smaller formation in Trango in like 2014, and, and that was like I think the first time ever that any Pakistani had ever done like you know anything in the Trangos at all. Uh, just like you know, someone was able to do it. That evolution is the same as it's been elsewhere. To be honest, I mean the Alps, even the original alpinism there, you know, they weren't interested in the practice rocks that were around it was like the cragging came later and and it was wasn't even a sport in and of itself it was just this thing you did to practice to do big mountains for the longest time and that's actually what i was most curious about with with talking to you was this idea of that there's this like climbing community whose focus is you know maybe partially in a in a remote way like oh we'll do this in the mountains later but the idea that it was just climbers and they just wanted to go crag and, and, and do hard moves on hard pitches. And, you know, that scene is, is very modern, right? It's very modern. And it's like, it's just feels like, like in a lot of places, you know, this is the case in India as well. Um, I talked to Gauri Varanashi, a, a climber from there and, and they're in the same position, maybe a little bit further down the road than Pakistan, but not much, um, in terms of like, Oh, look at all these 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 rocks around, and you know we've been neglecting these, and and they had the same same thing happen where there was a you know visit some visiting climbers that put in a lot of the first the first bolted routes. So it's a very similar story, and you're just getting along, or uh, Pakistan's just sort of getting along on its path that that I think happened you know in Europe 140 years ago, and 
in the United States 70 years ago or whatever, where the practice cliffs become the actual focus, you know? I mean, bouldering was then the next step, right? Bouldering was just practice for the practice cliffs. So yeah, I know hundred percent. I mean, I have actually been like trying to get on there on some of the guys' cases, like, you know, like, oh, well, foam is very cheap there. You can find some like, you know, cheap sporting foam because apparently like a bunch of like, like Adidas, like manufacturers, it's like soccer balls and like, like in Sialkot or something like that in like Pakistan. Uh, so you can get like, you know, good foam for pretty cheap uh, and probably just like sew together a crash pad for not much money uh, and like get bouldering. But, uh, you know, it's a uh, like on the note of like, you know, how the, the the parallel between like the India and Pakistan climbing scene. I listened to your interview in, with uh, Gauri and as for like the cultural sort of like barriers and things like that um, and just like, you know, people being stoked. Uh, so some of the actual original climbers, I think I remember reading somewhere or hearing in an interview that like from the first generation, so like the Imran and Asman, you know, the, the Imran Asman, and then there was another climber as well who unfortunately perished um, alongside them when they were attempting, I guess the highest and Pakistani um, sort of controlled Kashmir. They pretty much, I mean, like, they, I think those guys like, you know, had regular like, you know, banking careers or like jobs that were like, you know, reasonable professional jobs. And they kind of like left them to pursue climbing at a high level. So I think there's always like the constant like push and pull between you know, you want to sort of do well financially uh, for yourself. And, you know, perhaps you might come from like a little bit better off of a background and can avoid like, you know, you can be supported by like your sort of family a little bit while you pursue climbing and stuff or uh, or otherwise you uh, might just go and climb even to make a living. So like some of the guys now, um, you know, they make their living from guiding and from uh, not really dirt bagging per se, but, uh, you know, they, they sustain themselves like through climbing related endeavors because that's just what affords like the most time and effort or like the most time and opportunity to like be on rock uh, versus like, you know, working a, a normal sort of nine to five or nine to six in a city um, without much climbing access. So I was wondering too, and you, you actually mentioned this in, in your topic suggestions was about gender as well. Um, you know, you know, it's, it's an Islamic country and that comes with a lot of um, disparity between what genders are capable of achieving um, just culturally and, and in terms of the religious norms. Back to Gowrie, you know, she, she ran into that, but it's, it's a whole different, you know, it's obviously a, um, a whole different culture in terms of religion. So um, can you talk about that? I mean, are there women participating in the sport at all? And um, what, what's their place and what are the, the sort of um, nature of the genders climbing together? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, gender equity in a Muslim country is obviously, like, you know, a very hot topic and all that. But mm-hmm. uh, I think the the India kind of example of, like, you know, like, oh, you should be, uh, like, what Gary is mentioning, like, oh, you should, like, you know, not be out here, like, you know, et cetera, et cetera, dangerous, not safe, or it's not, like, a place for, like, a woman, et cetera. I think that sort of uh, theme certainly pervades, uh, like, in Pakistan, like, in general. Um, there's certainly, like, a class component to it, like, where if you come from, like, sort of a decently cosmopolitan and, like, uh, I guess, educated family per se, uh, you know, that's maybe not the most accurate way of framing it all the time. But, um, you know, certainly like a lot of families like will, uh, you know, not uh, encourage, you know, participation in like sports and things. But that said, I think there's actually like quite a bit of participation from like women. One lady who like, you know, got a lot of like coverage and news and like would win some of the local climbing competitions and was climbing probably harder than a lot of guys were as well. Um, and she was from actually like a very conservative tribal area and like the FATA, like the federally administered tribal areas. Uh, and, you know, she was like climbing pretty hard for like quite some time. But then I guess it's like, is it like a permanent thing where people are just like climbers 24 seven and, and forever and ever? 
Uh, so I think like if people like, you know, settle down and have a family perhaps, and like maybe folks might like drop out of like the climbing scene a bit, uh, at least for women, I suppose. But um, I mean, as far as like uh, current participants go, um, you know, the, the, the distribution is certainly like very heavily male just because I think like, like in general, like women in sports is probably like something that, you know, has really only taken off in like the last like several decades, like in the West, I suppose, like uh, in terms of women's like professional sports and other sports, like being given like the same sort of weight in a lot of places. So, I mean, it's certainly like, uh, I think in terms of there being barriers, I think it depends as well, probably on like the segment of society you're from. I would say that actually might play more of a bearing. Like if you're from just a very conservative village, uh, you know, you might face more of an uphill battle getting to the crag, but I mean, if your family sees that you're, you know, you're winning awards, you're doing things that are objectively hard and people don't do, um, and you doing, you're doing them safely in a way that you're not like risking your sort of like health and safety and well-being. Like, I think the barriers might actually not be as bad um, as, as I, th- I think one might initially assume them to be. Because I didn't inter- interact with like very many like female climbers when I was there, you know, it's probably hard to speak on everyone's behalf. So I hope I'm not like, going to get some angry yeah. comments in the... From like Pakistani women climbers being like, hey, no, we exist. Like, yeah. I didn't interact with the women climbers for the first five year I, years I climbed either. So don't worry <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, quite notable. So, uh, you know, someone someone just by virtue of like the fundraiser that like, you know, went out on Instagram and was reshared by like Stronghold and like Zom Connection and like by like Len and, and a bunch of folks. Um, you know, so there's actually like, you know, about a handful of uh, climbers uh, of like Pakistani heritage that like reached out and connected. And uh, one of them is, uh, you know, from here, like from the U.S., but like has like back home connections and actually there right now. And uh, she was like saying how there's actually quite a few. I mean, what are you going to continue to do? You know, you did this fundraising that was just, uh, I mean, it was really just grassroots. Like it got put out on Instagram on uh, Len Nesifer's account and that's where I saw it. Um, that's how we ended up connecting actually that we're here now. Um, donated, you know, a very, very modest sum, but I figured I'll just throw something into there too. And, um, and, and yeah, so what, what are your, um, what are your sort of hopes and dreams? You know, are you going to take this further? Or are you just going to try to, you know, bring duffels of gear over when you go? Yeah. What are your sort of hopes and dreams for, moving forward with any sort of um, support that you could give from the U.S. Uh, with your connections in in uh, Islamabad? Yeah. So, I mean, like the the initial fundraiser, like you said, was literally just like, you know, bring a bunch of gear and, you know, give some cams and like I had a bunch of cams and, and the fundraiser initiative actually was, it got a really good response to from like the sort of stronghold climbing community, like the gym in LA. I probably should have shouted them out earlier because they've actually been so, so helpful and like getting uh, really just like offering a lot of just help and visibility and stuff. Um, but, you know, we raised some money, we raised some gear donations. So it's stuff that I'm like planning to bring with me uh, when I go back in August. But as for like long-term trajectory, like, you know, for the trying to help the climbing scene in Pakistan, like, you know, I plan to be visiting like pretty regularly, I would say, uh, just in the next like probably couple of years. I mean, I have a trip in August planned for all for basically like a whole month or like a month and change. Um, we're planning to mostly just go to northern Pakistan and stuff. I mean, there's a lot of these like grants that are available. So like American Alpine and like, you know, various of these like athlete programs. But even without that, I feel like it's it's probably not too hard to get like some grassroots stuff and raise like a few hundred bucks for like bolts and just like try and bolt up some places. And that would be like high yield. So like a couple of different like projects to get like just more people involved and grow the sport and 
uh, I've, I've definitely like started, uh, I've annoyed some of like my dad's, my, my dad and some of my dad's friends about like, you know, what's the, what do you think about like the commercial real estate landscape in like major cities in order to see like how expensive like a gym would be basically. Cause if you're trying to get like a few thousand square footage, like space and like throw up a bunch of like plywood boards on the wall with holds, I think that's something that could be sustainable and like certainly would be worth looking into. Uh, it seems like the, you know, Islamabad, like Alpine club people are already doing that. I'm probably not like, you know, the game changing force just myself uh, in the climbing scene. Like, I think it's important to note that like, it's all kind of like going and I think, you know, there's a, there's kind of like a, a rich, rich scene already that like just kind of needs like a little bit further of a push. So uh, whether it's just like, you know, a few sets of cams or like, you know, bags and bags of like bolts and hangers or whether it's like hopefully some maybe some type of like bigger initiative uh, to like, you know, get like a commercial gym made or try to you know, but like lobby, whatever sort of sports board, like installs climbing walls in places. Uh, Cause that's something that actually has been happening in, in one of the hometowns of one of the, like the, the budding climbers, uh, there's like, you know, a climbing tower that came up and they have like a speed climbing wall. I guess speed climbing is like pretty easy for people to get good at and to get into. So I think that's probably something that's been like emphasized as opposed to like, you know, getting a bunch of people who can like win world cups. I feel like you have to be like a five fifteen climber. <laughs> to to really be able or like you know very elite just from like a like a sport and bouldering level to really really get good at those or to be competitive in those but um you know it's just it kind just of seems like, cruel to me to uh to um subject people to speed climbing as their introduction yeah, yeah. to just the like sport that I, in the butt, i didn't like want right to say now, like because because people are stoked get... on it and like dudes are like yeah i'm a speed climber i'm like oh no like <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, it's like it's like if you were yeah. to um, if you were to design a ski hill and you were to just make it all moguls or something like that. It would be like, <laughs> well, they, um, isn't the like freestyle mogul like, they have like backflips at the end? So I don't know. Maybe that can be kind of cool. It might make you technically yeah. good, but I don't know if speed climbing does that. Not to disparage, but I am disparaging. Yeah, people we'll should disparage. be skiing powder, and people should be sport climbing really fun routes. Well, as far as like outdoor climbing, I mean, you know, you mentioned bouldering because that's probably your your easiest entry, but you know, it's like sport climbing is really close second for the people who don't have to actually bolt the roots, you know, and, and the, and it's interesting. You're talking about like trying to get money together to bolt roots. And I just started to think about how, like most people in the States who clip bolts have no idea here, how much it costs and who pays for it. And, you know, and it's like, we don't have organizations that necessarily pay for it. Occasionally there are like, especially rebolting, but mostly it's out of the pocket of the developers. And we just have our, our economics are here that people have disposable money to, to throw into bolts. But I just find it funny that like, you know, your average person climbing, clipping bolts here in the States have no idea how much each placement cost and the, the cost of a 15 bolt route with a good anchor in it. So it's, it's like not that much different, but I just feel like, Trad climbing is totally awesome, but everybody needs a rack. You know, every everybody who, who who's going to go trad climb needs their own set of gear. And draws are obviously way less expensive. And so you just, I think, with the, if there's a lot of bolted routes in sport climbing outdoors becomes a thing. It's just an easier barrier to get through in a place like Islamabad. Anyhow, it's just kind of just something to keep in mind. Like, well, because again, we we're so not used to really thinking about the cost of what we're doing you know obviously if you're 20 years old and you're trying to buy a rack and you're putting yourself through school or you have some crummy job like it's a hit right to buy a rack you know and you may be accumulated but you know it's not like buying i, I mean i can only imagine like 
buying a brand new rack off the shelf there would be like the level of buying like a, you know, a nice used car here yeah. or something. To put it into you know, perspective, so like, like yeah. I think, uh, so I should say, by the way, uh, I, I realized I didn't shout them out quite at all yet. Uh, but like Zom Connection is like, you know, Z- I, Stronghold Gym and Zom Connection were the ones that really helped with getting like the gear fundraiser going and like, you know, uh, Zom in particular is kind of like trying to bridge that gap of like, you know, getting gear, getting equipment, like drill it, like putting up routes in places that are otherwise like not going to have anything like bolted and developed and like easy to access for people. Um, but there are locals as well that are doing it. But um, I think in Islamabad, at least there's like two guys maybe that like, you know, have been drilling like, you know, like routes or putting up routes and bolting stuff. But yeah, just in, in terms of uh, like the cost of things, like, like one bolt, like, you know, one route probably costs like what, 200 bucks, something like that. I don't know, 150 ish, depending on like titanium or whatever is being used, et cetera. Um, and then over there, the minimum wage of like, you know, if you're just like, like, I think a regular sort of working class person uh, is like pretty decent if it's like a hundred or so US dollars like a month. But that's like sort of like the mass sort of like population. If you're like working a job straight out of college at like a good accounting firm or something like that, you'll probably take home around like a thousand or like 1500 US dollars like a month just practically speaking, I think for just the development and things like that to really take off, it kind of needs like a lot of investment from like official government organizations and things like that, or like semi-government or just people, some like wealthy person who is very stoked on like climbing and mountaineering and is able to like trust the kind of uh, very, very bold uh, or very, very like not bold, but like active and like dedicated crowd of people who um, you know are going to be taking all the like development work into their own hands and just kind of throw money at it. Uh, or throw resources at it really it doesn't and it doesn't take like a ton like you know a, a couple grand will probably like you know develop like whole crags and like places that would then spur like new scenes of climbers and, and build a bunch of budding strong climbers and stuff yeah i mean that that's interesting too because going back to like the the alps analogy that that was all you know that was all being this pipeline of of aristocrats were funding you know, the guides and the people who were doing the climbing, even, even in, you know, the, the Alps, uh, like again, 130 years ago or whenever it was. Um, so it was the same system of these dirt baggy kind of guides that were the great climbers. And they had, they literally had patrons, you know, that were, were their clients that were the wealthiest people in Europe, you know? And so it's like, yeah, it's like this infusion of, you know, some, somehow this infusion of that kind of support is kind of, important and, and at this point the government could step in um and then also like i said um donating or having people bring it in from from outside would be really cool yeah i actually think the the model in palestine is probably something that is like probably something that would very be like be very effective to export in pakistan is like with wadi climbing and like that whole scene that's emerged like it's really like i mean i mean i mean palestine i think benefits from just being very dense i guess and and probably having like relatively close proximity. I don't know, because I've not been, I, I did listen, to, I, I, I zoomed into like, I know like uh, Miranda Oakley gives like a presentation guide and out in like Yosemite and, and Bishop and stuff, uh, who's also Palestinian heritage, um, just like about that whole scene. But uh, what's really remarkable about like, you know, the Palest- the climbing scene in Palestine is that it's like, you know, only like, what like 10 or 15 years old or something like that. And it's just like, you know, people are like stoked, they're strong, they're like, you know, just getting after it. Um, and I think that initial investment that like the, the, the dudes that developed all that, uh, kind of, you know, very clearly went a long way into like making a bunch of really dope, strong climbers who are just like out there doing rad stuff. 
some a similar type of investment would go a very long way because there's already like a concept of like you know mountains in Pakistan and you know climbing and stuff would certainly take hold uh, quite a bit if if I think there's just more attention to it. Yeah, well, the gym the gym was the big part of, or I, I think one of the linchpins with that model um, that. Uh, Tim and uh, his partner, Tim Bruns, and his partner, whose name I'm forgetting, I'm sorry, uh, used when they when they were developing the Palestine climbing community. Just to pivot to like kind of an annoyingly Western-centric mindset, one of the things about Pakistan that's like, it's always stood in my imagination, at least as a climber, as a sort of elite place to visit. Like you have to be such a high level athlete in order to go climbing there. And you've, you've kind of described and painted this wonderful picture of a community and just like accessible crags that, you know, are around Islamabad. And, um, I, I looked at some of the photos of, of the routes that you sent over and, um, yeah, it just looks like a fun place to go and like an, a cool adventure. And so I just love to hear your pitch to like our audience to the, you know, the average climber in, in the U.S. Um, maybe wasn't thinking that Pakistan was a place that they would ever go visit. What would be the tips that you would want to share with them in order to uh, set them up? Obviously, Pakistan is known for its, its big, big, scary mountains, uh, which are indeed big and scary if you ever go to those places and especially in wintertime. But that said, like even just from like a sort of cultural and, and sort of like adventure tourism perspective, uh, you get like amazing, amazing experiences. Like the food is amazing. The people are amazing. The country, despite sort of, you know, impressions of like political instability and, you know, granted, yeah, there's some like shit going down in parliament right now and with the prime minister and this and that. Um, But like, despite all of that, and despite like, you know, the associations of like, you know, threat of extremism and security and, and all the sorts of stuff, it's actually like quite like normal and, and it's just like a cool place to be. And it's it's really different and you get exposed to like so many different types of like people from like a variety of different like backgrounds and like, you know, ethnic and religious groups and, and all sorts of stuff. Like some of like the oldest civilizations exist, uh, like historically, like I think Mohenjo-Daro is like the oldest uh, inhabited like archaeological city or something like that, I don't even know. Um, and, and, you know, when you combine that all with like, you know, the prospect of just climbing in a place. Uh, Like, that's a very, very powerful sort of experience. And I think, like, in terms of, like, a place that's, like, worth it as a destination, I know people go to Kalimnos and things like that. Uh, Sure, you might not have as developed, like, sport climbing and things in in Pakistan as you would in Kalimnos, but it's it's really just so vast and diverse. And, yeah, it's, like, I probably should have documented it better because I think my, my own, like, you know, Instagram, like, photo dumps are quite like limited and don't really do a good job. Probably I'm not doing the best job as I could right now, I suppose. Uh, I mean, you, you, what you need to do, and this is, is just go and find that, that spot that the, the locals are whispering about because it hasn't been developed yet. And it's like, you know, I mean, what, what's the place in, uh, in, um, Lebanon, uh, Andrew, um, Tannerine. Yeah. You know, like that, level of like and then post that like say hey this is what's this is what's available um and then people will like show up and spit bolts into it like maniacs you know what i mean like there needs to be a little bit of a pr push and that's all it's going to take if you can find like the the ultimate why do you think he's he's on our podcast right now chris this is this is (laughs) yeah pakistan is about to um is about, about to, to blow uh, up. 
It's about to blow up. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's going to be so many bolts coming out of these rocks that people are going to think that diamonds are come popping out of the cliffs. Yeah. I think there actually are a lot of like precious metals and stuff in some of these areas. So I don't know. Maybe there's that kind of gold rush too, if people are after it. Um, but no, I mean, like, yeah, it's just like a, there's there's oceans of rock. And like, you know, you you look at some of the photos or of, of these places and you're like, what the hell? These are really big, scary like rock spires. Uh, so there's certainly like, you know, cliffs that would provide like really, really striking climbing uh, that, you know, just like, like you said, I guess a photo of that, like just on the internet would probably just draw people. Yeah. I'm thinking more of like a big ass limestone cave. That might, uh, yeah, that might do the trick. I'll look at, I'll look around and see if people have recommendations. <laughs> Cause that's, you know, it's like when you're even this, this, even way we're talking, we keep, we keep going we towards keep like the big like stuff, drifting back yeah. to the big mountains. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking like, what about like, you know, like you said, Kalimnos, people go there because it's like Next a to relaxing water. and fun place to go rock climbing or, or, you know, a hundred other cliffs in the world or a thousand other cliffs in the world where you don't have to bring double boots. Um, you know, it, that's the whole, that's the whole point. Well, and so, so it's just like, case, well, what is well, like a cragging trip yeah. to Islamabad? Is that worth it? Is, there, is a cragging trip you know, to or, Islamabad worth yeah, it? Yeah, I would say yeah. yes. If you combine it with like a sightseeing trip to like Northern Pakistan, yeah, of if course. you go to Northern oh, okay. Pakistan, uh, in the like sort of summertime when it's not like, you know, frigid and, and cold, uh, you know, it's, it's otherworldly, right? So it, it's, it's really just a really next level place just in terms of the scenery and sightseeing. Uh, and, you know, you can find a place to bolt up and, and have your heart's desire with like all sorts of cool routes. But, you know, I'll, I'll keep my eye out actually my next trip in August because okay. uh, that would right. probably be probably worthwhile. Because that's what we're trying to crack open is this whole this whole idea that you don't go there with with 35, you know, North Face duffel bags full of clothing and food to go into these mountains. You go there to have a tourism slash cragging trip, you know, and that's you know, that's what's running Greece, Greek climbing. And I mean, obviously Greece has these other, other draws, um, seeing as how it's Greece and, and there's the Mediterranean and all that, but like, that's the draw of these places are, are, are that you're just going there to climb in this exotic place and you want to have fun and be safe and do nothing but hang draws on, on bolts. Yeah. You know? Well, Hunza Valley, even though Hunza Valley is like full of scary mountains will probably be like the best place for that. Cause it's like, such a striking place. Really, like, all sorts of places in, in Pakistan are like that. Um, but I guess just by virtue of, like, being able to see, like, very famous mountains, like, from the city is probably, mm. like, enough of a draw on its own. And then just perhaps being able to, like, sport climb there. There's actually some routes that have been put up right by, like, very popular tourist attractions. So, like, there's a lake that formed uh, after some really massive landsliding, like, blocked up and dammed a river. Um, and that lake is like, you know, now just extremely pristine and just really beautiful. Like I was there in the wintertime and it was like insanely nice. And I can only imagine in the summer uh, when you can actually like, you know, go on the water and stuff and imagine like climbing a spire, uh, you know, overlooking something like that, just like a, a glacial lake in Karakoram. It's like, you know, super dope. To find out what you're doing, um, just follow your Instagram or something. Yeah, yeah. My Instagram is really easy. I mean, it'll probably be linked or whatever, but it's just like at wally.kamal, but I would actually also recommend following uh, not only like my own stuff. I mean, heck, it's probably like less notable to follow my own because I mostly just like post mm -hmm. pictures of my cat. And then if I send my project, finally, then I'll post something about that. Um, but then, uh, you know, follow the local climbers in Islamabad. So uh, okay. and, and Zom Connection as well. So Zom Connection, uh, they actually do a really good job of highlighting 
uh, all the different sort of like northern area, like Pakistan, like people who are just getting after it. So at Zom Connection and then check out their website. And I think they might even still have their GoFundMe going, but they have their trip coming up for which they're going to be doing cool stuff. Uh, Pika, who runs that's really cool. Um, so Zom Connection is one. Uh, Sherry R. Kadak, who is uh, basically like the main climber that I got connected to. He's really cool as well. Um, there's Sajid Ali Aslam, who runs like the main guiding service in Islamabad. Um, there's um, Saif Khan, I believe, uh, who is probably like, I want to say like the strongest climber of the group or among the stronger ones. These guys have already set like, I think there's like a route that's probably like 7C plus or something like that, that like, like the, the four or five really strong dudes have all sent. Um, and he's probably like, I think the first one to do it, maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so Saif is also a really cool person to follow. Uh, Arham is another uh, local who actually spent some time in Michigan and, and learned climbing out here. Uh, but he's from there, I believe. Uh, and, and you know, like, so a lot of guys are doing really, really rad stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, they all deserve a lot of visibility and attention and, and ultimately support and, you know, people visiting and things like that. Oh, I almost forgot. My homie Navid, uh, Navid's feature, uh, Navid Alabeg uh, on Instagram is like Navid's feature. He's a really, you know, really, really strong up and coming, up and coming like mountain, mountain guide skier kid, you know, from Hunza. So he's a local uh, in, in those like mountainy areas. And, and he has some really cool projects with like local ski clubs, just like getting people in, in the mountains and, and teaching kids how to do things. Yeah, all sorts. So... On today's final bit, we feature Australian comic and burgeoning climber Bridget Epitropakis. Bridget is currently living and gigging on the Front Range of Colorado, and you can follow her at Instagram and Twitter. Epitropakis is spelled just like it sounds. Or hit up her TikTok handle, at Taylor Swift OnlyFans. And be aware that this is a late-night comedy club set and completely inappropriate for a climbing podcast, which is why we're putting it here. So it takes a little bit of time. They're just starting out in comedy and they're working for the price of someone one free drink. So fucking give them the time, eh? Please have a place to walk to the stage, Bridget and Pedro Barker. Saying we have to wash our hands for as long as it takes to sing Happy Birthday twice because it feels like that's how many we have left. <laughs> I got really lonely at the height of it all. Like, I would just get in my car and drive to the testing clinics to remember what it was like to have intimacy. <laughs> 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 Sweet felt through rubber gloves and PPE. You really start to miss that kind of basic human connection. I don't know if anyone here has never had a test, but it's a lot like having sex, because it only hurts the first time, but you never have to worry they want to text you that. <laughs> I'm happy to be back doing stand-up. I miss doing comedy a lot. I don't think I could do any other job if I thought about it. Like, I could never make an OnlyFans. Because I believe that sex work is real work, and that's the only thing that stops me from doing it. <laughs> So instead, I'll just do this for free for the next 10 years. Emotional prostitution. I actually did end up making an OnlyFans last week. Because you know what? Why the fuck not? Like, there are guys that are willing to pay money for whatever weird shit you get up to most of their time. And even the link is OnlyFans.com slash tables with OnlyFans. 
pictures of me. I just screenshots from the notes section of my phone. I get very fucked up thing. I never thought it would break off in the morning. I called it girlfriend experience. <laughs> like I might never know what tortoise is capable of feeling resentment, but if I'm not sleeping tonight, then neither are you. <laughs> my friends tell me all the time that doing comedy is so great. I don't think doing comedy is great. Like, to me, nothing that will ever be as great is getting a guy's phone from under his pillow while he's just playing. Yeah, I made the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, 
had to get abortion. There was nothing else I could do. I don't know where you guys stand with abortions, but fucking they're good to have when you need them. I also don't understand why women say they fell pregnant instead of they got pregnant, because the only place I tried to fall was like downstairs. It's I tried a few times, so I had to go get it done professionally. I had the abortion on International Women's Day, which is true. The place was packed. <laughs> And then they gave me one of those cards that said the tenth one's free. <laughs> the procedure was really straightforward. I chose not to go under the anesthetic because I wanted to be conscious for it. I wanted to see what was going on, unlike the way that it was conceived. <laughs> for this, at least I'm getting a DIY class. Like, now I know. I can just go to Bunnings and see what Dyson's are on sale. <laughs> <laughs> see my sex. Anyone have any questions? <laughs> Thank you so much. just finished another episode of the runout podcast i'm andrew bisharat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com and i'm chris Kalous, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die that's true we also have a patreon that you can support our show at and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com no no, 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 no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. No, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money. Give us some money.